0: You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Tracy Butler. a housing estate on the west side of Limerick City, is sort of notorious. In the 1990s, Limerick City had a population of only about 100,000, and though it was and is the third largest city in the Republic, the slow-chugging Irish economy of the time meant that unemployment in the city was high, and any improvements in the national situation had hardly any impact there anyway. It had lost nearly all of its traditional employment in the mid-20th century and it was hard hit in the recession of the 1980s. Moiras was arguably the place which was left worst off and as we all know poverty often travels hand in hand with an increase in crime rates. It was during this period that Limerick began to be called Stab City due to its higher than average levels of knife crime. This was a term that was used often by Dubliners gleefully sipping their pints, who never like missing the opportunity to make fun of the regional cities and the culties who dare to try and live their lives outside of the pale. But it was and is a term that the people of Limerick do not want thrust upon them. That said, the crime rates in Limerick and particularly in Moyras were high. Guardi were in and out of the Moiras estate trying to referee what developed eventually into gang warfare which pitted one family against another. Some parts of the estate had those tidy well-kept terraces we like to talk about and yet others were scarred with houses that had been burned out or boarded up. Even kids ended up somehow involved in the feudal warfare that was caused by a struggle to control the drugs trade in the city. Dr. Neve Hurrigan, a sociologist from Limerick, even wrote a book about the city and what she saw as the reasons behind the crimes committed there. She pointed partly to a culture which required a level of toughness, saying it was so prevalent that parents raised their kids to be tough in order to simply survive. The place had a bad reputation, and that would last for some years to come, it was in this context that, on the evening of Monday the 12th of July 1993, 17-year-old Tracy Butler was attacked at Balinanti Road at about half-past eleven. She'd been on her way home to Craig Avenue in Kilili, an area adjacent and southeast of Moyras, just about five minutes away by foot investigating Gardie studying the scene discovered that tracy had been seriously injured and then chased across a green area her attackers then caught up with her and continued their assault tracy was stabbed a number of times she was rushed to limerick regional hospital where intensive efforts were made to save her life but unfortunately tracy died just an hour and a half after the attack was over Gardie described this attack as frenzied in nature. House to house inquiries were carried out, and according to witnesses, two people, dressed in black, had carried this out. Tracy's post mortem would establish that she had sustained at least 10 stab wounds to her chest, back, face, and other parts of her body. Gardie found a sharp edged instrument which might have been used in the attack. It was collected as evidence and sent to Garda Forensic Experts. By Wednesday evening, the police told the press that they were not ruling out the possibility that Tracy's attackers could be women. Superintendent Liam Quinn headed up the investigation. He said that they were following a definite line of inquiry, and they expected to make significant progress with the case. In the wake of the brutal attack, people in the area were horrified. Mayor of the city of Limerick, Jan O'Sullivan, said this was a terrible tragedy that had come at a time when crime rates in Limerick had seen a significant improvement, which was rehabilitating the image of Limerick, given it had been associated with crime. On Thursday, the 15th of July, Gardie announced to the public that they had set up a confidential telephone line for people to call with information relevant to the investigation, they thanked the public for their cooperation and the support that they had received to that point in the investigation, while Superintendent Quinn asked for anyone with information on what had occurred that night to come forward. He said, quote, Even the tiniest scrap of information, which might seem insignificant, could possibly provide a vital clue to the final tragic moments of Tracy's life, end quote. Investigators were trying to piece together the last hour of Tracy's life from the previous Monday and the events that had led to the brutal attack on her. Gardie had uncovered that at about half past 10 that night Tracy was with two friends, sisters, and had gone to their home in Moiras. Tracy then began her walk back to her own home by herself. In hospital, before she died, she'd been able to tell medical staff that her attackers were dressed in dark clothing. Gardy had also received a tip about two people seen walking up and down the main Killili Road that night, which seemed to match this description. These people were not seen on the road after the attack had been carried out. The following day, Friday, Gardy revealed that they had found two knives near to the scene as well as dark coloured outer clothing. The press were told that a team of 20 officers were working the case. There was nothing to indicate whether the clothes found belonged to a man or a woman. It appeared that the items had been dumped by the attackers as they fled the scene. Gardie also said that witnesses who had heard Tracy's screams during the course of the attack had also been in contact with Gardie. That night, Gardy appealed for anyone who might have seen two young people wearing hoods on their heads in the time just before Tracy was attacked to come forward. Again, Superintendent Liam Quinn thanked the public for their response and assistance to that point. Tracy was described by her mother Christina as a quote good and lovable girl. She continued, quote, We know of no reason why anyone would have wanted to kill her, end quote. Mrs. Butler echoed the Gardie's appeal to the public for anyone who could help them in their investigation. On Saturday, the 17th of July, while forensic experts continued their examination of evidence gathered from the scene, four women were arrested by Gardie in relation to Tracy's killing. The police arrived at a home in Tipperary Town, 40 kilometers from Limerick and about an hour's drive, just before 9 a.m. that morning, and they arrested the women there. These women were reported by the Sunday World as being aged between 15 and 40. They were brought to Henry Street Garda Station in Limerick, where they were held under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act. At 10 p.m. that night, at a special sitting of the District Court in Limerick, two women were charged with the murder of Tracy Butler. 17 year old Deborah Hannon and 24 year old Suzanne Redden, both from Moy Ross in Limerick City, were remanded in custody on the charge. Jerome Riley, writing for the Evening Herald, reported that Deborah, or Debbie as she was known, and Tracy Butler had actually been friends since childhood. They were of an age. Deborah's mother, Teresa, told him, quote, from the time they were in play school until the death of my husband, those two girls were inseparable. They both left school after primary together and they looked out for each other. They were always fighting on each other's behalf. End quote. The Sunday Tribune went further and said that the two girls had been best friends, and that the two of them used to go shoplifting together in the city centre. Deborah was a known shoplifter. The girl's parents were just sixteen when she was born. Her father, Willie, was well known to the Gardie and was considered a troublemaker. He was a bodybuilder and had a reputation as a fighter, as well as a womaniser. According to the Tribune, he had a string of affairs and had taken to simply ignoring his wife, Teresa, if she tried to intervene and stop them. The other woman charged with Tracy's murder was Suzanne Redden, originally Suzanne Meany. At 18, she had married Liam Redden, and the two 18-year-olds had leased a shop from his parents, Peggy and Mick, located in Moy Ross. They lived in a house in Sarsfield Gardens in Limerick, a home described as neat and well-kept. Suzanne had had a child from a previous relationship when she married Liam Redden and the couple went on to have two children together. Suzanne's mother, Rose Meaney, said that it was after Suzanne's work in the shop began that her daughter started to, quote, "'Mix with people who were bad news.'" It was in her capacity as a shopkeeper that Suzanne had met Willie Hannan, Deborah's bouncer father. They soon began an affair, and Suzanne broke things off with her husband. Despite the affair, it seemed that Suzanne had managed to stay friendly with Teresa, who she'd also met through the shop, and she'd struck up a friendship with Debbie, Teresa and Willie's eldest child. Meanwhile, Tracy Butler, the 17-year-old these two women were accused of setting upon and murdering, was described as her friends and family as a bubbly, outgoing girl. She'd begun working at St Martin's Youth Centre in the months before her death, a centre not far from her home. According to the Gardee, Tracy was known as a fighter. She, quote, knew how to take care of herself, and wasn't afraid to use aggression to look out for herself or on behalf of her friends. One commenter said, You had to be hard at that time in Limerick. Christine Butler, Tracy's mother, spoke to the Sunday Tribune. She said that she believed Debbie Hannon was trouble and she'd wished she'd kept Tracy away from her. Christine commented, quote, She's the devil from hell, and my Tracy is an angel. End quote. Because of her impression of the other girl, Mrs. Butler said she would not let Debbie into the house when she would call over for Tracy, and Tracy had been warned to stay away from her and knew her mother wouldn't let the other girl into the house. But the girls were friends, and they were close. Whatever warnings Christina had given her daughter had seemingly fallen on deaf ears. Tracy and Debbie continued to pal around together and, on occasion, get into trouble. The two were both picked up for shoplifting and sentenced to five months in early 1993. Both had appealed this conviction. The court in that instance was told that Tracy had one previous conviction, and she was let off. But Deborah had nineteen previous convictions, which included having assaulted a shop worker with a screwdriver, and she was therefore sent back to serve out her sentence. Later, Christine Butler, speaking to the Sunday Tribune, said, quote, And that is where her grudge against Tracy started. Jerome O'Reilly, again writing for the Evening Herald, revealed that there was a feud that had led to Tracy Butler's murder, and according to his sources, it had begun in early 1993, though there were, of course, various versions of the events. In the version that reporter heard, In the months before Tracy's death, there had been an argument over a spilled drink in the Savoy, a Limerick City disco, where Deborah's father and Suzanne's lover, Willie Hannon, was working. The incident escalated quickly and witnesses said that it was not unlike a riot. It was only brought to an end when Gardie kitted out in riot gear were dispatched to the club and broke things up. As a result of the melee, one man lost an eye and others had serious injuries from smashed bottles used in the fight. Willie Hannon, who had been working as a doorman that night, was also injured in the incident. He had to have nine stitches for a cut to his face and had, in addition, suffered soft tissue damage, sustained when he was hit a number of times with a bar stool. From that point on, Riley wrote, tensions had increased between those who had been involved in the fight at the Savoy. The Sunday Tribune also described the incident at the club, but said that things had kicked off when William Hannon had, quote, lashed out after being jeered about his affair with Suzanne Redden. Willie had begun swinging and, in the course of the fracas that followed, one of his swings had landed on Tracy Butler. Knives, blades, broken glasses and chairs were all used in the course of the brawl. The paper also reported that Suzanne had been injured in the fight too and had needed stitches to her head. It was after this that Tracy and Deborah had fallen out and stopped talking. Whatever had happened, four months on, Willie Hannon was jumped by eight people who beat, kicked and battered him with various instruments. Willie eventually passed away from the injuries he sustained on the 4th of July. After the fight in the club, Debbie had been up in court for a string of shoplifting incidents and had received a 14-month sentence. On the night of the attack on Willie Hannon, her father, she was still serving out this sentence in Limerick Prison. Debbie had been granted compassionate release in order to attend his funeral. Disastrously, both Deborah Hannon and Suzanne Redden believed that Tracy Butler had been involved with this group of eight men and bore some responsibility for the attack which had resulted in the death of Willie Hannon. podcast is sponsored in part by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I talk about BetterHelp a lot on this show, and this time I want to talk about some of the stigmas around mental health. Some people think you should wait until things are really bad before you go to therapy, but that isn't true. Of course, therapy is important if you're going through a crisis, but it's also a tool to utilise before things get bad. Honestly, in my experience, it's an awful lot easier to put coping mechanisms in place when you're in a decent headspace. I know that after spending the best part of two years working with therapists and coaches, that I've built a level of resiliency that is going to serve me for many years to come. All the skills I've learned get put to use in my everyday life. They're like muscles I exercise. I don't skip out on my doctor's or dentist appointments to keep an eye on my physical health, and I approach my therapy in the same way even when I don't have anything in particular to complain about. If any of this was taught in school, I missed those days and what you can learn through therapy about how your mind and body work, it's really important. And it's important to figure out what makes sense and works for you. Today's sponsors BetterHelp make that process really easy, which is super helpful if you're just starting out. It can be a daunting process to find a therapist and make that first appointment. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's also much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy, and Men's Rea listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash MENS. That's BetterHelp, B E T T E R H E L P.com forward slash Men's. This episode is also sponsored in part by Generation Y from Wondery. When it comes to podcasts covering mystery and murder, Generation Y is a true original. If you're obsessed with crime and unsolved murder cases, this show has it all hosts Aaron and Justin cover cases from all angles. They break down theories, dive deep into forensic evidence, and discuss their opinions on the most perplexing cases. In a recent episode, Aaron and Justin look at the case of Laurie DuPont. Laurie was a well-respected 37-year-old nurse and single mother. She met a physician named Mark Daniel at work, and the two hit it off and began a secret relationship. But after a while, the romance cooled, and Mark began harassing Laurie at work. It turns out Mark had a history of dating and being abusive towards nurses. Lori filed for a restraining order, but before a judge could issue it, Mark entered the hospital with a military sword and committed an unthinkable crime. Generation Y was one of my first true crime podcasts and over five years later I'm still hooked. Aaron and Justin are just so darn affable and they cover cases in a thorough and sensitive way. If you've somehow missed out on them you have to check them out. Listen to the Generation Y podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. On Tuesday, the first of march nineteen ninety-four, the trial of Deborah Hannon and Suzanne Redden opened at the Central Criminal Court, before Mr. Justice Richard Johnson, and a jury of six men and six women. Paulo Higgins acted as senior counsel on behalf of the state, and gave his opening statement that day. He said that the two defendants in the case suspected that Tracy had witnessed the killing of the father of one of them ten days before. But, O'Higgins continued, there was no excuse for acting due to a vendetta. O'Higgins said it was the state's case that the defendants suspected that when Mr. Hannon was killed, Ms. Butler and others had been present. There was no suggestion that Ms. Butler had carried out the killing or had any involvement in it, rather she had merely been present as it occurred. The two defendants had set out and had undertaken the actions together. And the senior counsel argued that this indicated there could be no doubt as to the intention on the part of the defendants to kill or to cause serious injury to Tracy Butler that night. Mr. O'Higgins told the jury that the defendants had admitted carrying out the crime a number of times. On the night of her death, Tracy Butler had called to a friend's house on O'Callaghan Avenue at about half past ten. She'd left. 45 minutes later, at around a quarter past eleven, accompanied by three friends. After about 15 minutes, she had left the other girls to make her way to her home nearby. The court would hear that several people had seen Tracy in the Ballynatty Road area that night, as well as two people wearing black clothes. Scuffling and cries for help were heard. Some people had recognized Ms. Butler's voice as she called out. Mr. O'Higgins said, quote, this was a killing carried out, if not in cold blood, then not entirely in hot blood. The state will say that at all times there was a clear-thinking plan by the two accused to kill Tracy Butler, quote. While the opening statement was delivered, Ms Redden was seen to place her head in her hands and was visibly shaking. The court first heard from Miss Phyllis Dumas... She lived on Ballynanti Road and had been in bed on the night of the 12th of July when she heard a knocking at her window. Ms Dumas said that her brother had opened the door in response to this and that a girl had fallen into the house. The witness recalled that she was covered in blood. John Brommel was the brother who lived in the house on the Ballynanti Road with Ms Dumas. He said that at about half past eleven on the night of the 12th, He heard shouting outside and had looked out the window. He recalled that he had seen a girl get up off the ground not far from his front gate. He heard her cry out something like, ''Somebody help me!'' The witness told the court that he had gone to the front door and opened it after hearing a knocking at the window. The girl, covered in blood, fell into the house when he opened the door. She stumbled into the hall and fell onto the floor. Mr. Brummel recalled that her face was all cut and covered in blood. Edward McCarthy had also been in the area that night, out walking. At around half-past eleven, he told the court he had heard someone shouting help. He saw three people, two of whom were dressed in black. One of these two had the person who had shouted for help by the hair and Mr. McCarthy had seen the other come up behind her and drop something and pick it back up. The witness said the item was a knife. Mr. McCarthy had then seen this person in black stab the girl five or six times. The girl had then fallen to the ground while the other two ran off. He'd gone for help and while doing so he'd noticed the injured girl make her way towards a house. Edward McCarthy said in court he didn't know if the attackers were men or women, but did say that, to him, they had jogged away, quote, like girls. Paul Sheehan had seen Miss Butler walking in and around Ballynanti Road, putting the time at about 11.22. Just a few minutes later, he heard shouting and then he saw two figures dressed in black from head to toe near to a shop. They were dragging Tracy Butler by the arms towards a house on Ballynanti Road. Mr Sheehan described how Ms Butler had pushed one of the people aside, but that they'd come back at her, stuck a knife into her and then she fell to the ground. Tracy had shouted for help and shouted stop. She got up and Mr Sheehan saw her go into a house on Ballynanti Road. The witness was cross-examined by Paddy McEntee, defending Suzanne Redden. Mr Sheehan confirmed that when he spoke to the Gardaí he had said he thought these two figures were men. The following day, Wednesday the 2nd of March, Fred Horgan said he'd been walking home on Ballynanti Road when he saw two people standing over another. He'd shouted at them and asked what they were doing and the two people moved in his direction, pulling up their hoods. They then turned to the right and made off, first walking, then running and then walking again. Mr Horgan told the court that he'd seen their faces. The figures were two girls. One had fair hair. When he was cross examined by Michael Feehan for Ms. Hannon, Mr. Horgan said that he had told the Gardee that both girls had fair hair, but he couldn't now say that for sure. He also agreed that he had described both of the girls as having roundish faces. Then the court heard from Dr. Margaret Bolster, assistant pathologist, who had conducted the post mortem on Tracy Butler's body on the 13th of July. Dr. Bolster testified that she had identified 49 injuries on Ms. Butler's body. Fourteen of these were stab wounds, sustained on Ms. Butler's neck, chest and arms. She had also observed swelling of the brain. There were various other cuts and abrasions on Tracy's body, including on her arms and face. Both of Ms. Butler's lungs had been pierced. The main injuries were three wounds to Tracy's left lung. These had caused her lung and two arteries to collapse. She had one puncture wound to her right lung. On the stand, Dr. Bolster was shown two knives. One was described as a carpet knife, a Stanley blade type instrument, and the other was a domestic knife with a serrated edge. Dr. Bolster told the court on questioning by Mr. Feehan for Deborah Hannon that the carpet knife could not have caused the stab wounds as the blade was too short. However, the large bread knife would have inflicted any of the stab wounds. The retractable blade could have caused other injuries and some of the superficial cuts that she had observed. Dr. Bolser agreed with Patty McEntee for Ms. Redden that it was possible that all of the wounds she had observed during post-mortem had been caused by just one knife. The court heard that, ultimately, Tracy Butler had died from shock and hemorrhage. Then Dr. Padder McGrath, a consultant anaesthetist at Limerick Regional Hospital in Dura-Doyle, recalled that he had been present in the resuscitation room on the night of the 12th and 13th of July 1993. He had seen Ms. Butler there and noted she was suffering from multiple stab wounds. Attempts to resuscitate her continued until approximately 1am when she was pronounced dead. After this, the jury was sent out for legal argument to be heard in the case. They were told that they would return again the following afternoon, Thursday the 3rd of March. However, this legal argument continued for a number of days and the jury was sent away until further notice on Monday the 7th of March. They didn't return to hear evidence until Monday the 21st of March 1994 after 10 days of legal argument. That day, Detective Sergeant Daniel Hoff went over a statement given to Gardy after Deborah had been arrested at a house in Tipperary Town. He had arrested her under Section 18 of the Offences Against the Person Act 1861. The statement, read aloud by Mr O'Higgins for the state, said in part, Planned all the time, Suzanne and myself. We planned to kill Mark or Sharon or Tracy. I blamed them for killing my father. I kept thinking about my father. We planned it after the funeral. At this point, Mr. Justice Johnson addressed the jury directly at the request of the defense. The judge said that the statements made by each of the defendants were only to be considered as evidence in relation to the charges against that particular defendant. What Deborah said couldn't be considered in relation to the charges against Suzanne, and vice versa. In her statement, Deborah Hannan went on to say that she was the one who had had the Stanley Blade that night, and said that Suzanne had had the knife. Debbie also admitted to wearing dark-coloured clothing. In fact, Debbie said she had initially gone to the pub on the Sunday night, the night before Tracy's death, armed with the Stanley Blade, looking for Sharon Butler, Tracy's sister. But Sharon hadn't turned up, so she and Suzanne went back out the following night. Debbie told Gardy she had waited outside a bar for Suzanne before the two of them walked over to Ballinanti Road where they had spotted Tracy Butler walking alone when she saw Tracy walking down the path. Miss Hannon said she'd spoken to the deceased. The statement said, quote, "I told her you're going down now like my father did. I just kept thinking about my father." End quote. In the course of the attack, Debbie said that Tracy had said something about how Debbie's mother was going to be next. Hannon said that she had used the Stanley blade on Ms. Butler's face and commented to Gardie during the interview, quote, I didn't think she was that bad like, end quote. After setting upon Tracy, Debbie recalled that she and Suzanne had run back to the Hannon house and that they'd dumped their clothes at a neighbor's. Her mother, Teresa Hannon, was distraught at the sight of the two women and began screaming. Teresa had then collapsed and had to be put to bed. Debbie told Gardy that she thought the police would have arrived that night. She was in a panic and was frightened. In order to calm herself down, she had taken a couple of Roach's Fives, a benzodiazepine sedative. She had also put a few knives under her bed that night because she thought that Mark Butler would surely arrive at her house and retaliate for what she had done to his sister. The court was also told that Debbie had gone into the local Garda station after hearing that they wanted to speak to Tracy's friends in the wake of her death. Gerdie, who spoke to her at the time, said she was cool under questioning and she had informed them that she hadn't seen Tracy in months. She had then simply walked out of the guard station. Giving her statement in Henry Street Station, the defendant had commented to Gardie that the attack and everything had all happened so fast, and that she was, quote, sick of all this now, and wished it would all stop. Deborah Hannan told the officers that she was sorry for what had happened. Then Detective Garda John McCarthy brought the court through a statement made by the defendant Suzanne Redden given the same day while also in custody at Henry Street Garda station. Miss Redden had told Gardy that she was a mother of three and was married but she and her husband had split up and that she was in a relationship with William Hannon until his death on the 4th of July. William Hannon's wife, Teresa, was aware of their relationship, and Suzanne told Gardy that the three were actually all good friends and got on well. She then explained that she had been present the day William Hannon had been beaten in Limerick on the 2nd of July. She outlined that she had arrived on the scene as it came to an end and saw William Hannan lying on the ground. No one came to his aid, people were walking away. And she told Gardie that she had, in fact, seen people smirking and sneering. According to Miss Redden, Tracy Butler, the deceased, had been present at the attack on Mr. Hannon, and she'd heard Miss Butler make comments about Willie Hannon as he lay bleeding on the ground. In her statement, she admitted that she had felt very bitter towards those who had beaten up Willie Hannon and those who were present and had done nothing. On the night of the twelfth of July, Suzanne said she and Deborah had left her home. She admitted that she had put a knife up her sleeve and said it was just in case she ran into a certain person who went unnamed in court as the statement was read out. Redden went on to tell Gardie that both she and Miss Hannon had been wearing dark clothing that night. The two women had met Tracy Butler as she walked on her own and as they approached, Redden stated that Miss Butler had begun to smile and make faces at Deborah Hannon. Then the two women had grabbed Tracy and pushed her across the road. They were shouting and fighting, and both she and Miss Butler had fallen to the ground. When Tracy Butler got back up, she'd run towards some nearby bungalows. Ms Redden's statement continued quote, Deborah and I beat her up together. I got the knife and stabbed her in the chest area at least once. I heard Tracy Butler shout help me, help me. I dropped the knife. I don't know if me or Deborah picked it up. After this, a man had approached them, and so the two women had run back to Deborah Hannon's house. After the court heard these statements, Sergeant Thomas Mulvihill, the member in charge at Henry Street Garda Station, on the day the defendants were brought in for questioning, described for the court having informed Ms Redden of her rights. After listening to this recitation, Ms Redden had said that she did not want to see a solicitor. Sergeant Mulvihill was shown a custody record from the day of the arrest and he said it was incorrect in relation to a particular time. He agreed with Mr McEntee that it was his duty to keep the record and ensure it was correct. The sergeant had also seen Ms Hannon that morning and had informed her that her mother had asked for a certain solicitor to attend. The Gardee had made efforts to contact those solicitors and Sergeant Mulvihill had eventually found a lawyer to come to the station that afternoon. Mr Feehan, Senior Counsel Acting for Miss Hannon, asked if it were the case that the defendant had been allowed to meet with her mother for around 20 minutes and then interviewed until being brought to a cell at 10 minutes past 2. Sergeant Mulvihill agreed that this was what had occurred. Then Teresa Hannon, Deborah's mother, gave evidence and told the court that she had been home on the night of the 12th of July. After hearing a knock on the door late that night, she went into the kitchen and saw her daughter and Suzanne Redden taking their clothes off. The clothes were put into a plastic bag, and Teresa also saw a knife being put into this bag. She'd seen blood on their hands and, according to Teresa, she began to feel very weak and fell to the floor. A man and a boy who were also in the house had then taken the bag away and it was her understanding that the bag and its contents were to be burned. Teresa Hannon had also been questioned by Gardie on the 17th of July and she had met with her daughter while in the Garda station too. She said that after her husband's death, Suzanne Redden had made a large floral memorial wreath in his memory and had had this blessed. Ms. Redden had also called to Ms. Hannon's house after Willie's funeral and had been very upset. Julie, Deborah Hannon's sister, said that she had answered the door to Deborah and Suzanne that night when they returned. She said that the two had run past her into the kitchen and she had asked what was going on. Julie Hannon told the court that her sister and Suzanne Redden had told them they were after attacking Tracy Butler. The following day, Dr. Maureen Smith, a forensic scientist, described for the court how she had examined clothing that Tracy Butler had been wearing on the night of her death. She had noted heavy blood staining and a number of stab holes in a t shirt worn by Ms. Butler, as well as blood staining on a pair of jeans. Dr. Smith said she had also examined both a Stanley knife and a serrated blade, provided to her in two parts, the blade and a wooden handle. Both had been collected by Gardee. She had tested the Stanley knife for the presence of blood, which had indicated a positive result. The two parts of the knife, Dr. Smith concluded, were part of the same object. Then, the state's evidence concluded. Mr. Fien, appearing on behalf of Ms. Hannon said that they would not be calling any evidence. Suzanne Redden's legal team attempted to call medical evidence on her behalf. Paddy McEntee told the jury that it was his intention to call three medical experts to give testimony, but Paul O'Neill for the state objected, saying he wished to raise a legal matter and Mr Justice Johnson sent the jury out. After an hour, court resumed and Mr Justice Johnson said he had ruled that the evidence that Mr McEntee had planned to call was in fact inadmissible and the jury would not therefore hear it. With that, the evidence portion of the trial was over. Closing speeches took place the following day on Wednesday the 23rd of March. Mr Eamon Leahy, barrister at law and a part of the prosecution team said that the evidence in this case was clear. Each defendant, as part of a joint enterprise, had set out on a plan of common design to kill or seriously injure Tracy Butler on the night of the twelfth of july nineteen ninety three. Given this joint enterprise, it didn't matter which of the women had inflicted each specific wound, or the wounds most responsible for Ms. Butler's death. He said, quote, It is a tragic case, but tragic cases must have the law applied to them in the same way as any other case, Michael Feehan, appearing on behalf of Deborah Hannon, told the jury that the only issue in relation to his client to be decided by them was the matter of intent. He said Deborah Hannon had been, quote, demented at the time of Tracy Butler's death, and that the circumstances around Ms. Hannon giving her statement to Gardee had been, quote, oppressive. He asked the jury to find his client not guilty of murder, but rather guilty of manslaughter. Paddy McEntee then stood to give his speech on behalf of Suzanne Redden. He said that if the jury had any doubt whatsoever that his client had intended to kill or cause serious injury to Tracy Butler, then they must find her guilty of manslaughter. It was up to them to make a, quote, value judgment regarding the functioning of his client's mind at the time. He said she'd been in a state of emotional and mental confusion after the death of her boyfriend. Mr McEntee also said that the jury should take into account what Redden had said in her statement about having strong feelings of bitterness towards those she thought responsible for William Hannon's death. Then Mr Justice Richard Johnson gave his charge to the jury. He said that there were three verdicts available to them, guilty of murder, guilty of manslaughter, or not guilty. A verdict of not guilty would be a difficult one to reach given the contents of the statements made by counsel in their closing speeches, but, he said, it was nonetheless still open to them. Justice Johnson also told the court that there was no concept of diminished responsibility within Irish criminal law and, therefore, this idea could not be considered as a factor in their decision. The jury of six men and six women then retired to consider their verdict, but just under two hours later, at half past four, they returned to court with a question. The foreperson explained that they were having difficulties with the fact that diminished responsibility could not be applied and were having trouble in relation to the question of the state of mind of the accused. Mr. Justice Johnson responded to the query, telling the jury that they must take into account all the evidence that they had heard regarding the capacity of the accused to form intent, and to do this for each accused separately. If, after examining all the evidence before them, they were not satisfied by what had been presented, the onus of the establishment for proof of the intention to kill beyond a reasonable doubt had not been satisfied and they should return a verdict of either manslaughter or of not guilty. As soon as the jury returned to continue their discussions, submissions were made by the defence counsels. The jury was then recalled. Mr Justice Johnson reminded the jury that the statements of each accused related only to that person and could not be used in determining the guilt or otherwise of the other. The jury then retired once more, and at twenty minutes to six, they were informed that a majority decision of ten to two would be accepted by the judge. At seven o'clock, Mr. Justice Johnson asked whether he could offer them any assistance, but the four persons said they had no questions for him. An hour later, they were informed that the jury could disagree. But then, just before nine p.m., they returned with their verdict. It had taken six hours to get there, but in the end they did. They had, for both of the defendants, reached a majority verdict of ten to two. Deborah Hannon and Suzanne Redden were guilty of murder. When the verdict was read, Suzanne Redden cried out sobbing and fell from her seat in the dock. Her parents tried to comfort her as she slumped in dismay. However, Deborah Hannon was on her own, with no family present with her throughout the trial. They had moved to England to get away from Limerick. Her mother, Teresa, later told the Sunday Tribune, Limerick will always be Stab City to me. I can never go back there. End quote. According to the same paper, Tracy Butler's family and friends were heard to whisper yes and smile as the verdict was read out. However, Tracy's mother was so distraught she'd been unable to attend the trial. Mr Justice Johnson said he had no other option but to impose a life sentence on each of the women. He noted that Ms Redden was ill and said he wanted to ensure that she would continue to receive treatment in the Central Mental Hospital until she was fit to serve her sentence. Suzanne had suffered from depression after her arrest and had made a number of suicide attempts. After the verdict, Sharon Butler, Tracy's sister, spoke to the Sunday Tribune, telling the paper, quote, They deserve everything they get because of what they did. I'm very happy that they will be put away for life, but the bitterness will be there with us and will never go. We have never been able to grieve for our sister because of the bitterness. End quote. The day after the verdict and sentencing, Mr. Justice Richard Johnson was back behind the bench of the Central Criminal Court where he issued warrants for a number of Tracy Butler's relatives. Mark and Sharon Butler of Khalili were the brother and sister of the deceased. A warrant was also issued for Deirdre Mulqueen of Limerick City, who was the aunt of the Butler siblings. The warrants were issued on foot of an application made to have them bound to the peace. This application was made by Paddy McEntee. Suzanne Redden told the court on the 24th of March that Mark Butler had made a threat to quote cut up one of her young children. The incident complained of had happened the day before Wednesday the 23rd on the evening of the verdict as Suzanne Redden and Deborah Hannon were being led through the yard at the forecourts by prison officers to be transferred back to prison. The family of Tracy Butler, also standing in the yard, had roared and screamed, They were shouting curses and names at the women and then eventually said that Redden's daughter would be next. Mark Butler had said Suzanne was locked up and had three children and he was going to quote-unquote get them. Sharon Butler had also shouted that a named child was to be next. The tension already thick throughout the trial had ratcheted up during the six-hour wait for the verdict earlier that day. With all the shouting and jeering, The Sunday Tribune described how Suzanne had basically lost it. She flailed in the grip of her guards, pointing at the family and screaming her head off. The paper said that she had to be then pushed, kicking and screaming, into the prison van. The report also outlined that as this outburst occurred, Deborah Hannon was right next to Redden. But she didn't react. She had remained impassive, as she had throughout the trial. In fact, the article noted that the two women hadn't talked at all during the trial and had not even seemed to look at one another while sitting in the dock in the courtroom. Their respective families and supporters also kept their distance. In court on Thursday the 24th of March, a woman who wanted to remain unidentified said she had been on the grounds near to Ms Redden. She had heard the threat as it was being shouted. The words she heard were, quote, You whore, you whore. Child's name is next. The witness said that these threats were shouted by a woman, a man and another person. A prison officer also appeared before the court telling the judge that she'd heard a man speak to Ms Redden and ask her how her young daughter was. Then Sergeant Liam Quinn outlined that there had been ongoing issues with threats being made after certain incidents which took place in Limerick. According to the Irish Independent, the superintendent said that this had been the case for the past five or six months, creating a very difficult atmosphere. Paddy McEntee said that there was a serious risk of a breach of the peace and asked for the judge to direct that the three be arrested and brought before the court. The judge agreed and issued the warrants. The three were arrested as soon as they had arrived back in Limerick on the train from Dublin. They were promptly returned back from whence they came. They were all to be brought before the judge the next morning. At that hearing Mary Ellen Ring appearing on behalf of all three told the judge that her clients were prepared to be bound by the peace. The judge said he understood the issues at play in the situation and that had those undertakings not been given he would have ordered a full inquiry which might have led on to contempt proceedings and potential prison sentences. Mr Justice Johnson said he would not seek independent sureties as long as they all signed bonds to keep the peace for three years in open court. They all gave personal sureties of 250 pounds. All three agreed to an undertaking read out in the court to stay away from the Redden and Meany families, and in particular Suzanne's children. As a final comment, Justice Johnson said that not only had this incident occurred in the court precinct, it had happened just outside his chambers. He knew that at least one prison officer had been present in addition to one Garda. He seemed annoyed that the circumstances in which this incident had taken place had been allowed to happen on the grounds of the four courts, no less. Further details of the various relationships and events that had taken place and were cited as leading to the horrific attack and murder of 17-year-old Tracy Butler emerged in various articles in the weekend that followed the conclusion of the trial of Deborah Hannon and Suzanne Redden. As interviews were given by family members of those involved, more was learned of the relationship between Willie Hannon, the deceased, married 33-year-old father of Debbie who was seven years older than his lover, the other woman convicted in the case. Teresa Hannon, Willie's wife, said he had had a number of affairs in the course of their marriage. She recalled in her interview with the Sunday Tribune that one night, the husband of one of Willie's women had come to their house. She'd been up in bed when Willie arrived home and said that there was a man downstairs who wanted to talk to her. Teresa had asked who it was, but Willie didn't give an answer, so she went down to see what was going on. The man had then asked her if she knew Willie was having an affair with his wife. She had responded, quote, Well, what do you want me to do about it? I can't control him, End quote. At that, the man had simply left. Willie had started his relationship with Suzanne Redden in 1992. Eventually, he ended up splitting his time between his family home and Suzanne Redden's home, often staying up to four nights a week with Suzanne. Teresa told the Star newspaper that the relationship between Willie and Suzanne began with them going swimming together. She said, quote, The next thing, they were going swimming three nights a week. Then they were swimming every night for hours. Then they were swimming overnight and not coming home at all. End quote. According to that weekend story in the Sunday Tribune, Deborah had been angry at her father's affair, and there was tension between her and Suzanne. That report said that this tension had played a role in the fight that broke out in the Savoy Disco in January of 1993. More emerged too about the attack on Willie Hannon, which seemed to have precipitated the targeting of Tracy Butler, or at least one of the Butler siblings, in order to gain revenge. On the night of the 2nd of July 1993, Willie had been out drinking, this time with his wife Teresa. They were in a local pub and according to the Sunday Tribune they ran into Suzanne. The three had left the pub together and were walking through a nearby estate when eight men appeared and set upon Willie. The paper reported that the two women were actually held down while Willie was struck with items such as iron bars and wooden implements and was beaten and kicked. Afterwards, Teresa Hannon had run away screaming while Suzanne Redden stayed with Willie and held him. Suzanne said that Tracy Butler had been there through the violent assault and had shouted at the attackers, egging them on and telling them to quote, kick him to death. This was an allegation that was strongly objected to by Tracy's family. Sharon Butler, Tracy's sister, said, quote, "There were a lot of people around there, but Tracy wasn't, and none of our family were. We were in the area, but we didn't see anything. Tracy would never do anything like that. It's just all lies." End quote. As previously mentioned, after the death of her father from head injuries two days after this attack, Debbie was released on compassionate grounds from prison in order to allow her to be with her family and attend her father's funeral. Over the next ten days, she would spend just one night in prison. It was at Willie Hannon's funeral that the two women had begun talking about getting revenge. Debbie had told her mum, Teresa, that she planned on killing one of the Butlers. Any of the three kids would do, apparently. Debbie had named each of them, Mark, Shannon and Tracy. In response, Teresa had said she was going to bring Debbie to see a psychiatrist. It would seem that that never happened, as just a few days later, Tracy Butler was dead. After the attack on the 17-year-old, both women had been frightened, anxious and distressed. But Suzanne was certainly the party less able to hold it together. She was in an absolute state and was taking Roach's fives to try and keep calm, but the behaviour was noted and people in the area began to talk. Very quickly, everyone around seemed to know that Suzanne and Debbie had been responsible for Tracy's killing and the two women had thought it was only a matter of time before they were jumped or someone arrived in their homes. Gardie were also progressing in their investigation, and the net was tightening around them. This was what had led Suzanne and Debbie to decide to get out of Dodge, or in this case get out of Limerick, and so they'd gone to relatives in Tipperary. Once they were arrested, both women had confessed quickly. Speaking to the press after the conviction of Hannon and Redden for the murder of Tracy, her family, the butlers, were angry. The word used was bitter. They'd also been outraged at the emotional displays of the Redden and Meany families after the verdicts were read out. Christine Butler, Tracy's mum, told the Sunday Tribune in what was described as a sickened voice, quote, If one of mine killed anyone, I'd never recognise them again. I wouldn't want anything to do with them. Those two will only serve eight years. Is that justice? Pigs in the slaughterhouse don't get a death like they gave my daughter. I'm still getting counselling. I'm dead myself since Tracy died. Christine said that she was so distraught in the aftermath of Tracy's murder that she'd only been to her daughter's graveside once for what would have been Tracy's 18th birthday. Suzanne Redden's family also spoke to the press. Brenda Power, writing for the Sunday Tribune, described the Meanies as gentle and easy. Rose told her, quote, We can't understand what happened. All we know for sure is that our daughter is not a murderer. That's a gut feeling we both have. We believe she was set up, probably as revenge for her affair with Willie Hannon. End quote. Suzanne's parents had had apparently no idea that she had been having an affair with Willie, though he was often in the house with her and they had seen him there. Suzanne had always provided a valid seeming reason. After Tracy's death, Suzanne had been asked outright by her parents if she had been involved, and she had told them that she was present, but that she hadn't stabbed Tracy. They had since come to believe that during that conversation, Suzanne had been holding something back, that there was something she was refusing to say, and that she was, quote, terrified of Debbie. They'd been shocked to get a call telling them that Suzanne was being held in Henry Street Garda Station, and that she'd been charged with murder. The older couple had travelled every day between Limerick and Dublin for the trial as they weren't able to afford lodgings in the capital, and her mother Rose added that her husband had a pass for the train. The Meanies admitted that they were frightened at the notion of the appeal which had been launched by Suzanne's legal team. The Meanies admitted that they were frightened at the notion that the appeal launched by Suzanne's legal team might fail. They didn't believe that she would survive having to serve out a life sentence. And they were scared for what she might do. In response to statements made by Tracy's family, Christy Meaney, Suzanne's father, told the Sunday Tribune, quote, We can't blame that woman, Mrs. Butler, for saying she can't forgive. We understand that completely because it's a vicious circle. So many families have been hit by this tragedy. As Deborah Hannon and Suzanne Redden began serving out their life sentences, the case relating to the death of Willie Hannon was still to take place. Three men had been charged with this killing, but the details of the men who were to face trial in the months after the conclusion of the trial in the Tracy Butler case were judice. Normally, as people appear in court for procedural hearings and so on, this would be reported, but it was not the case for these men. They had secured an order from the courts that there was to be no reporting whatsoever in relation to Willie Hannon's death before they appeared in the court to answer charges. This was in order to ensure that they would not face the potential consequences of adverse reporting. And so on Tuesday the 7th of June 1994 the three men appeared before the Central Criminal Court in relation to the attack on Willie Hannon. 22-year-old Alan Duggan, 19-year-old Eric Ryan and 18-year-old John McGrath all admitted to assault occasioning actual bodily harm to Willie Hannon nearly a full year before. Anthony Kennedy, senior counsel for the state, told the court that the DPP was not proceeding with charges laid against the defendants for murdering Willie Hannon. He outlined that on the night of the attack it appeared that Willie Hannan was seen striking a woman and then a group had chased after him who had grabbed various implements. The state had evidence that the three defendants were part of that group, but there were conflicting accounts of who had assaulted Willie Hannon and with what. There was no clear evidence of exactly what had happened. However, it was known that the defendant, Mr Duggan, carried a length of wood. Ryan had had a sewer rod and Mr. McGrath had been armed with a sheet of plywood. Mr. Kennedy told the court that the state pathologist had concluded that Willie Hannon had died due to a fractured skull caused by a blow to the left side of his head. Brendan Grogan, appearing for Mr. Duggan, asked for leniency in light of the guilty plea. He also told the judge that the guardie had said there was no assurance of an inevitable outcome. He'd also told the judge that the guardie had told him that there was no assurance of an inevitable outcome in favour of the prosecution should the case go to trial. Michael Feehan for Mr Ryan told the court that his client admitted striking two blows across the chest, blows that were in no way fatal. Mr Justice Fergus Flood said he accepted the forceful pleas submitted on behalf of the defendants in the case Particularly that advanced on behalf of Mr. McGrath. Duggan and Ryan were more responsible, he said. For those two, the judge handed down a sentence of three and a half years, with eleven months already served to be taken into account. Mr. Justice Flood then suspended a further two years, leaving the men with a six month sentence. A two year sentence was imposed for Mr. McGrath taken with time served, and a year that the judge was suspending, he would serve no further time in prison. On Monday, the twenty fifth of july, nineteen ninety five, the appeal on behalf of Suzanne Redden and Deborah Hannon came before the Court of Criminal Appeal. In December of nineteen ninety five, the judgment was delivered. mister Justice Blaney, writing on behalf of the Appeals Court, dealt with each of the applicant's arguments in turn, beginning with that of Suzanne Redden. The court said it was submitted on behalf of the first applicant that this appeal was limited to whether the question of manslaughter had adequately been left to the jury, but that, quote, in the view of the court, the first applicant's appeal concerned whether her statements should have been admitted in evidence, end quote. There were also questions as to whether the Garda procedures had been properly followed during Suzanne Redden's questioning, During the first portion of her interview, no contemporaneous notes had been taken. A note of what had happened was taken down an hour later, and the later statement was taken properly. This had been allowed into evidence, but not the first note. Further, Suzanne had been interviewed for a period longer than four hours. She had been informed that she was entitled to a rest period after this, but she had declined it and continued making her statement. The Court of Appeal considered the question of whether or not her waiving of this rest period meant that the interview itself could continue. They decided that this should not occur as it would leave a question as to how long exactly an interview could go on for that uncertainty should be avoided, but even given this, the statement was still admissible, as it was set out in legislation that a failure of Gardie to observe provisions set out in their regulations didn't necessarily mean that the detention was unlawful. There was some wiggle room there, basically. Mr. McEntee also complained that the trial judge had failed to direct the jury fully with regards to the issue of the statement of one accused being used in relation to the other. This was rejected completely by the Court of Appeal. Mr. Justice Johnson had addressed this at length after a submission from the defense itself and had referred to it during the trial. Paddy McEntee had gone on to argue that Suzanne should have been able to rely on a defence of flawed intent and that he should have been allowed to call his medical evidence to support this. But the appeals court pointed out that the only defences allowed where a person doesn't deny the unlawful killing were provocation and insanity. No defence of diminished responsibility or flawed intent existed in Irish law at that time. Mr. McIntyre's final argument was that, quote, the period of deliberation of the jury was unfair and oppressive to the jury and to the accused. End quote. There was case law relating to verdicts which had been delivered after a jury was kept late, but these had related to returning well into the night, really the early hours of the following morning. In this case, the period of deliberation had been about six hours and just before the jury had returned at half-past eight in the evening, the trial judge had told them that they were allowed to disagree. And so, this ground of appeal was also rejected. The first ground of Deborah Hannon's appeal related to the statements made by Deborah while detained in the Garda station, or perhaps more accurately, the circumstances which led to the period of detention in which the statements were given. Firstly, it was argued that the search warrant executed had been issued because there was information that there was a firearm in the house. This information had been provided to the superintendent in the case and he had refused to name the source, Agarda, and claimed privilege as it might put the source in danger, he'd said. The trial court held that Superintendent Quinn had been entitled to do this and the Court of Appeal agreed. Mr. Feehan submitted that there was no reasonable ground for Deborah's detention and it had therefore been illegal. However, the court heard that she had been brought in on foot of confidential information received by a member, Sergeant Hoff. Deborah's appeal further argued that the law that she had been held under didn't provide for Gardy to detain someone for the purpose of questioning. The judges of the Court of Appeal found that the legislation in question provided for detention in order to investigate an alleged or suspected crime, and as questioning was a valid form of investigation, there was no breach. Mr Feehan also argued Gardy should have obtained a solicitor for Deborah. The Court considered this by pointing out that, at the time, there was no duty to actually arrange a solicitor for a person being questioned. They informed the person of their right to one, and, in practice, would often ring around to see if someone could come in. Gardi had done this in Deborah's case, too. There had been no breach of her rights. As the law report published by the Irish Times put it quote, According to the 1987 regulations, Garda had no absolute duty to provide the applicant with a solicitor, rather, they were obliged to inform her of her right to one. Mr. Justice Blaney was satisfied that this had been done, and indeed that telephone calls had been made at the applicant's request to try and get a solicitor for her. End quote. Another aspect of Deborah's appeal related to evidence presented in the course of the trial. Part of Deborah's statement had been read to the court, in which she had explained to Gardie that she had been in prison at the time of her father's death. The jury should not have heard that Deborah had been in jail. Her previous convictions should not have been mentioned as it had no relevance to the trial and could have been prejudicial. Immediately after this was read out, the passage was removed from the copy of the text that was passed to the jury. The appeals court took the view that no miscarriage of justice had taken place though, despite the jury having heard the mention. The Court of Criminal Appeal chose in this instance to exercise its discretion. No retrial would be ordered. Deborah's legal team also complained at the length of time the jury had been left to deliberate, but just as Mr McEntee's submission for Suzanne Redden, this ground was dismissed too. Their appeal had failed. Both Redden and Hannon served out their sentences in Mountjoy's Joy's Centre. In fact, they shared a housing unit with Catherine Nevin, though they avoided the older woman. By the time Nevin joined them in 2000, after her conviction for the murder of her husband, both had achieved day-release privileges and left the prison in the morning to attend courses. Redden and Hannon were released on licence in the years that followed. However, Deborah Hannon breached her bail conditions and found herself back in the Doica Centre. She had been caught drinking in the city centre with a man described as a Dublin criminal but, according to the Irish Mirror, this was only to stay for the night. By 2002, both women were effectively free to live their lives, confined only by the conditions of their parole, and both were working as hairdressers. Christina Butler, speaking to the Mirror, was horrified. Nine years was not enough to make up for the murder of her daughter, she said. After the murder of Tracy Butler, things in Limerick, unfortunately, got worse. A long standing feud between two family groups involved in the £30 million per year drug trade in the city took root in the 2000s. What was knife crime turned into gun crime. But today, many of the key players in the feud are now behind bars. And notably, Limerick has also gone through a period of revival. It has shed its nickname of Stab City and was proudly declared the National City of Culture in 2014. It's a centre for the arts, and the impact of the establishment of the University of Limerick in 1989 has certainly begun to be felt. Last year, an article by Forbes once again called Limerick Stab City and went one further, claiming it was the murder capital of Europe in a feature on the founders of Stripe, the payment processing platform. Forbes ultimately removed the article, saying it did not meet their editorial standards when brothers Patrick and John Collison criticised the article. They said it was daft, and that they were who they were because of where they had come from, which, it must be noted, is actually a village in County Tipperary, 30 kilometres from Limerick City. Crime in Ireland is like crime anywhere else in the world, and crime in Limerick is no different from that either. Although each crime is unique in its own way. But whatever the context, or causes, or crime rate, this probably means very little to Tracy Butler and her devastated family. The same could likely be said about their impression of the workings of the Irish justice system. Speaking to the Irish Mirror in 2002, after the effective release of the two women who'd murdered Tracy was reported, Christina Butler put her feelings this way, saying, quote, my little girl lies cold in a grave, and her murderers are free to live their lives. I'm tormented by the death of my daughter. I'm dead for the last nine years, and justice has not been done. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks this week goes out to Katie Kirby, Suzanne Churchill, Jerry Hannafin, and Cara. Thanks to each and every one of you for signing up to support the show. It is hugely important to be able to keep Mens going, and along with my undying love for helping out, you get those ad-free and bonus episodes, as well as nifty merch. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Friends of the show, Generation Y from Wondery, and BetterHelp. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is "Quinn's Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. ...seem to have persisted... Precipitated, which seemed to have per- precipitated, seemed to have precipitated the targeting of. Tra-